You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Todd Miller, author and independent journalist, and the contributing editor on border and immigration issues with the NACL report on the Americas. On the on the coast of the small Philippine island of Marinduque, a man in a black shirt and blue shorts walks up the shore carrying a baby in his arms. Just as just as has been forecast by climate scientists around the world, littered all around him are bits and pieces of the quote unquote future. There is a house so devastated by the rising sea and surging waves that its exposed frame looks like ribs puncturing its crumbling wall. An uprooted palm tree lies nearby like a corpse in the gravelly sand. Soon the sea will entirely claim the ruined house and most likely many more homes, farms, schools, and businesses farther inland. This small community, Balogo, which is on the island where my grandmother was born and raised, appears like so many others across the globe to be on the verge of being completely washed away. The father and the child look out into the gray stormy sea. Typhoon Inang's center is far away in the Northern Philippines, but the waves still come crashing in. This storm will kill 14 people after battering communities with sustained winds of 80 plus miles per hour. The punishment includes tornadoes, flooding, and landslides that temporarily displace 34,000 people. Horrific as this may sound, by Filipino standards, this is a minor storm. Following Super Typhoon Haiyan, everything is relative to that 265-mile-wide machine of wind and water that smashed the island of Leyte in November 2013, killing more than 10,000 people and uprooting hundreds of thousands more. That was the first time I had seen with my own eyes, you know, the, the impacts of sea level rise in that sense, where it was actually destroying something. The, lay, the waves are lapping in and out of the house. And then soon thereafter, I interviewed a, a fisherman and he told me, he showed me, pointed out to a buoy that was in the water about 15 or 10 meters out. And this buoy was just rocking there. And he said, well, the shore used to be there. And so, and then, and, and at this time, there was that surge from the typhoon that was way in the north. It was pretty far away, but there was still a, a minor surge. And then the next thing that happened was a, a man walked to the shore and he was holding a child. And the child was one year, maybe one year. I remember seeing the child's black hair just kind of going around in the wind. And I stopped in my tracks in that moment. And I thought about that child. And part of this was influenced by the fact I was about to have my own child. So I, was, I wasn't only thinking of the past, right, for my grandmother, but I was thinking of the future, right? So my, my kind of scope of consciousness was almost two centuries, if I thought to the end of my, my coming, my unborn, still unborn child's life. So seeing this child in the small community of Balogo and seeing what I've heard about the sea level rise, and, they had, and the fishermen told me that they had already backed up the community a little bit because of it. Yes, so borders 
I mean, it's interesting because I I didn't really realize. I think that you identify that there's isn't it in the seventies or is it now in the eighties? Yeah. The border walls around the world. I don't know what it is now, but I would imagine that it could be in the eighties. In the storming the wall, there was seven. I believe I used the seventy was the number that that I used, and that was border walls since well when the Berlin Wall fell in nineteen eighty nine there were 15 border walls around the world. And then when I was writing Storming the Wall in this, we'll say 2017, there were 70 border walls and they, and they were being built in accelerated fashion in the post 9-11, in the post 2001. So you could look at the years 2005 or 2015 and see lots and lots of border walls being constructed around the globe. And so you could, so this, this idea of the border wall is very prevalent not only in the United States, but around the world. Yes. So in one sense, you know, to heighten, you know, security. And another sense, it's criminalizing, you know, a basic, you know, urge to survive. People who are trying to cross borders and people don't, as you know, don't lightly leave their homes and their livelihoods um, unless it's been taken away from them somehow. So they're really like battling to survive, as you've seen firsthand. And it's interesting, the questions that you pose in your books, if we could somehow divert, you know, some of the funds used to create these walls and to militarize them to you know, support life on the other side of the wall so people don't have to come over or programs to help people coming over enter society. And, you know, it just, it's like the like mismanagement of finances and our humanity. And it's quite interesting. I felt the questions you pose, I don't know if it's something that we can really imagine, but let's think about it. Is it possible to imagine a borderless world? And and, and what does that mean when, you know, your impulse to help uh, each, each other is criminalized? If, if you help someone who's termed an illegal, you become a criminal. Yes, that's in fact um, the questions that I grappled with in my most re- recent book that, that was published uh, this year called Build Bridges, Not Walls, looks at this, tries to imagine a world, a, a borderless world and borderless world in the sense of the political boundaries and looking at how political boundaries came to be, how often they were political boundaries or were imposed. The boundary of the U.S.-Mexico border, I live in Tucson, Arizona, about 60 miles away from the U.S.-Mexico border. The uh, Native people, the Indigenous people that lived here were not asked about the border wall or the border before it was imposed. It was a project of what was the United States at that time, but an imposition of what the border was, and this border still remains. It, there's a ton of autumn people just to the south of me, where I am now, who have people on both sides of the borderline. And, and you can look at this across the world, you know, how, how the political boundaries were put in place across the continent of Africa, for example, and the countries in Africa are kind of the continent was carved up in the countries, but there was not like any sort of person from Africa anywhere in the continent that was involved in these discussions. It all happened through what's known as a Berlin conference in 1883. And so it becomes a part of the colonization process, the idea of borders. Before that, 
you know, of course there's borders here, there's natural borders, there's borders like rivers and mountains. And, you know, there's, there's borders like even between peoples, you know, where different languages are spoken. Those sorts of borders have are, um, were, I guess, uh, porous, right? People travel back and forth. There's a, I mean, there's a whole world out there. So there's a lot of different things you can focus on. As you think about future generations and the kind of world we're leaving to them, as you think back on teachers and experiences that have been important to shaping your life as a journalist, you know, you know, what are some of those lessons that were essential and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Yeah. So I think with, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And I think I'm just constantly thinking about young people and the generations to come and the Iroquois in the U.S., indigenous peoples that were, of course, here before the U.S. existed, but the sort of wisdom that the Iroquois uses to look seven years in, in the past for wisdom and then project that seven generations into the past for wisdom and then project that when they're planning, take the seven generations from the past, bring it to the table as far as wisdom is concerned, and then think seven generations into the future when you're doing the planning. So you're thinking of your great, 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 great grandchildren. To me, that's, I find myself more at least trying to do that. Like, like the way we started this conversation on my um, grandmother's island and on the Philippines, it was only one generation each way, right? Well, three generations or maybe even four generations, right? My grandmother's generation, my generation, and which would include my parents' generation, and then my child at the time, unborn's generation. And that was really profound experience for me to really like embody that and think of it in that way. And, and to be able to even do that more and to extend yourself even further back and forward. I think that's the way that I want to think of things. That's the way that I'm trying to talk to my own children, (laughs) you know, and look, you know, as we go forward and think about this world, like right now, I talk a lot with my five-year-old about the border wall and he's had his experiences with the border patrol and yelling at him. And, but one of the things that he does he sees that I don't see as well is that he will go to the border wall and he'll look at it and we'll talk to people across it, across the border wall. And, but he'll look at it and go, why, why are we using this material for this? Like, why can't like this? Is, he doesn't say it like that, right? He's a five-year-old, but he'll say, why can't we use this? Why can't we build bikes? One time he said, why can't we take an excavator, which is the word that he just learned about the machinery, take down the border wall completely, and then use the metal then to build bikes. And I went, well, <laughs> yes, yeah, that's exactly, exactly what I think we should do. Cause that does it all right. Like you're taking what has been the material, you're seeing a use of it. That's terrible. And then you're transforming the use of it into something else. That's a bike that's, you know, beneficial for, you know, what's going on environmentally and the climate going forward. And so those are the things. So it's like, as I try to teach him, he teaches me. And I think that sort of back and forth of teaching and having these discussions and 
thinking about these discussions and bringing in like my grandmother or my other grandparents or my great grandparents and your great grandparents and everyone's great grandparents and and having those conversations and, and all of a sudden like as, if you go seven generations back and seven generations forward maybe these nation states are always trying to confine ourselves to kind of dissipate because so many people's stories are so all over the place right and I think like those sorts of conversations are super important and of course then the action component following them is also super important. When we see into the future, we can develop a counter vision, build bridges, not walls, and work collectively for a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for bearing witness and for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast or learn about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.